Good morning, uh, Grace women. <laughs> and a few men. Um, so, will you please turn in your Bibles to Matthew 28, 16 to 20. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, I've always been a student of churches, and uh, these weekend retreat things always fascinate me because it shows how uh, women have it together and men do not. (laughs) When I first started serving in the church, when the women went away for a retreat like this on the weekend, on Sunday mornings, I would notice men who were normally dressed absolutely impeccably (laughs) were like, they weren't even shaven. Their shirts are like hanging out, and they all gather out outside the church and are like, what time are they getting back? What time are the women coming back? And the kids are all running around like they're wild. So that's what I've noticed with uh, men in the church and women. And now I noticed this weekend when the men went away, I heard about all these parties going on on Friday. The women are all partying back here. So uh, guys, we, we don't have it together. Uh, So first, I just want to say thank you to the church for supporting Every Generation Ministries. I founded the ministry work in uh, 1993, yeah, 30 years ago, and uh, this church has been a big part of our ministry ever since, and we help churches around the world work with children, and we have work in 16 countries. Um, And so thank you for the monthly financial support the church gives to the ministry, all the people who pray for our ministry work around the world, and many of you have actually traveled overseas to serve with our ministry, so thank you for that. And then I wanted to uh, squash the, I keep hearing people um, say that I'm retired. Uh, Well, I'm too young to be retired, I'll never retire. Uh, So I still work for EGM, and what I'm doing these days is I have a weekly blog and podcast I do for children's workers. We have about 11,000 children's workers that are on our website every uh, month listening to the podcast or reading our blog. And then I started consulting with churches. This is the best. So I'm working with children's pastors at three churches. Uh, One's in Temecula, one's in Lake Elsinore, and the other one's up in Rancho Cucamonga, kind of mentoring their children's pastor and helping them develop a life-changing ministry to children. That's been super awesome. And then I'm also consulting with an organization that has orphanages overseas and helping them develop a better ministry um, fruitfulness, I would say. So I'm not retired, and it's an honor to be here with you this morning. So before we look at this fantastic passage, uh, let me pray. God, we are so thankful for your word, and we're thankful for the way it can convict and touch our hearts. God, I pray that you would help me to be faithful in communicating that word today. And God, I do pray for um, this church, and Lord, I pray for people in the church that are suffering this morning that have um, sickness and challenges relationally, work issues, pray that you would minister to this congregation through the preaching of the word and the worship this morning. We acknowledge your presence here and we ask that you would work 
deeply in our hearts that we could be more like you today than we were yesterday. And we pray in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. So there's this great Indian parable, and uh, let me see if I can get it right. It's about somebody being clever, but it has a different message for us this morning. It's about an Indian businessman who went traveling on a business trip, and he had a colleague with him, but the colleague was of sort of shady character. And the Indian businessman was quite wealthy, and he had uh, a lot of money with him and a beautiful watch, and he was concerned that his colleague was actually going to steal it from him while they were traveling. So every night when he would go in to brush his teeth and get ready to go to bed, uh, his colleague would go through all of his things trying to find his watch and valuables and money, and, and this went on night after night. And the shady colleague could never find the stuff. So after a whole week of travel, they got to the end of the trip, they returned back to Delhi, and the last evening when the man went in to brush his teeth and shower and get ready to go to bed, he came back out and the colleague just sort of came clean and broke down and said, you know, I have to admit that for the last week, every night, I've been trying to steal things from you, your watch, your money, and all your valuables, and I could never find it. Where did you hide it? And he said, well, I hid it in the one place I knew you'd never look, under your pillow. (laughs) And... So I wanted us to look at the Great Commission this morning with that idea. Um, There's something so obvious in the Great Commission that has been lost and overlooked. Uh, My entire Christian life, I've um, observed the teaching in the church, in the seminary I attended, and it's something that's so obvious, it's right underneath our own pillow. So when you think of the Great Commission, you think of things like evangelism, conversion, soul winning, presenting the message of salvation, gaining converts to Christianity, make, getting people to become Christian. And that's what we think about when we think about the Great Commission. So an organization or a church that's about the Great Commission is about evangelizing people, leading people to Christ. The Great Commission is a call to evangelize the world. And that's how the Great Commission was presented to me. It's been presented that way in Uh, Books and churches and entire organizations have been developed around that idea. And I want to suggest this morning that that's actually not exactly accurate. In fact, there's a treasure in the Great Commission that's hiding under the pillow. All right, so I want us to look in Matthew 28. If you've got your Bible, you want to turn there. So the context is Jesus has uh, been crucified, which is very a shock to his disciples, of course. And then he's been raised from the dead, which causes a great amount of consternation. You know, you can't understand how the king would die. That shouldn't have happened. Now he's been raised from the dead. What does that mean? And so we read at the very beginning, when they go to the mountain, some of the disciples are still confused and not exactly sure what's going on. And when we read in the um, two verses leading up to 18 to 20, you uh, see that Jesus is on a mountain. And those of us who are like, like to study the Bible and so on are the uh, original readers of Matthew. When you hear the word mountain in the Bible, you know something big's about to happen, right? Uh, Abraham takes his son up on the mountain. The Ten Commandments are given on the mountain. Uh, Moses is called on that same mountain. 
Elijah goes up on Mount Carmel and has, a, you know, throws down on the prophets. And so mountains are, you know, sort of a way that the writer signals something really important is about to be said. So Jesus gives them this great commission. It's come to be called in the Protestant world. And I'm going to read it again. And let's just listen carefully as the words kind of roll out. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. So when you hear that in English, you hear things like go, make disciples, baptize, teach. There's a lot of action words in the passage. And the problem is, in the English language, you can lose what the only imperative is in the passage. If you don't get anything else this morning, this is it right here. So the interpretation that I'm about to give you has nothing to do with what I think about what the passage means. It's not some doctrinal dispute between uh, different interpretations of a passage. I'm going to give you a grammar argument. I wish Dave's uncle was here. <laughs> okay, so there is only one imperative in this passage. There's not four. It may appear that in English, but it's not the case in the Greek language. And there are three participles. Now, if you're like me, I don't really remember what an imperative or participle is. So, <laughs> let me give you the definition. <laughs> I remember when I took a um, Greek class at Fuller Seminary, the first week or so, class, the, uh, the somebody raised their hand and said, uh, Doctor, I can't even remember who was teaching Greek at the time, uh, what is the definite article? He wanted to know in English, because he didn't know what it, you know. And the, pa uh, the professor looked back and said, the definite article is the. <laughs> we all felt stupid. Okay, so here we go. An imperative is used to give a firm order or a command. And I'm telling you in the grammar, there's only one imperative in the Great Commission. A participle is considered a verbal adjective. In English, usually ending in I-N-G. It can be used as an adjective to modify or describe a noun or, as in this case, it can be used to further explain or define the action of an imperative verb. So, what that says is, we have three imperatives, and I mean three uh, participles and one imperative. And the imperative has gotten lost in the translation and made to sound like there's four things going on and... They're all the same and, or equal, and so that uh, you go and make disciples, and you, there's going and making disciples, and there's baptizing and teaching, and well, that's actually not the case in the grammar. The only imperative in the Great Commission is to make disciples, period. And this is not Daniel's interpretation. This is a grammar argument. There's only one order in the passage, make disciples, Unfortunately, because of the way we translate, baptizing is a participle, teaching is a participle, it should say going. But who says, all authority in, on earth and heaven has been given to you, therefore going and make disciples of all nations. That just doesn't sound right. 
You could say, therefore, in your going, make disciples, but that sounds sort of weird too. So they just take the ing off of go, and it makes go look like it's an imperative, but it is not. The Great Commission is a commission to make disciples, and that, I'm going to suggest this morning, is the treasure under the pillow that's been lost and ignored, especially by evangelical Christians. Short and simple, the Great Commission is to make disciples. So the question is, um, what does it mean to be a disciple? And this is really fascinating to me. The term make disciple in the Greek language, not the same as discipulo, which is disciple, like a title, the 12 disciples, to make disciples is only used in the Gospel of Matthew, and it's only used three times in his Gospel, never anywhere else. And of course, the Great Commission is only in Matthew also, not in Luke, Mark, or John. So here's the other two times it's used. You can make a note of these, especially the first one, because it's going to help us understand what a disciple really is. So Matthew 13, 52, if you have a Bible, you could flip over there. This is one of the other times where make disciples is used. Let me read it. He said to them, Jesus, therefore, every teacher of the law who has been instructed about, that's in the New International Version, make disciple of, is what the word is in Greek, who has been instructed about the kingdom of heaven is like the owner of a house who brings out of his storeroom new treasures as well as old. So that's how the NIV translates it. The New American Standard translates it this way. Therefore, every scribe who has become a disciple of the kingdom of heaven, the New King James translates it, therefore, every scribe instructed concerning the kingdom of heaven. And the Revised Standard Version says, therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven. So you have the idea of uh, instruction, training, discipling. And when you think about it, the reason that it's translated like that is because make disciples is a big, rich word. It can be understood a lot of different ways. So let me give you the, what I think is a helpful de- definition. To, to make disciples means to work with people to help them become convinced about following Jesus adhering to him, understanding his teaching, and become proficient in the application of his teaching. So to sum it up, a disciple is somebody who's becoming more and more like Jesus, which of course means they have to know who Jesus is and understand who he is and what he's done, which is why going is so important. But the essence of discipleship is that we are to be to become more and more like Jesus every day. Think like him, act like him, be like him. This is the essence of discipleship, and this is the great commission, to make disciples of Jesus Christ. And for those of you who are theologically minded, what this really is when you think about it is if Jesus is God in the flesh, and we're supposed to become more and more like him every day, It's creation 2.0. It's the reboot of the garden where Adam and Eve were called to be in the image of God, to bear his image in the world. After the Great Commission, we understand our calling is to bear the image of Christ in this world. So he says there's three steps to doing that, three ways we do that, and we're going to look at those now. 
The first one is to go, which means leave where you're at. It means moving out of the place you live in some instances, as Marla and I did when we moved to Poland. It means leaving the comfort of your own little group you're in and reaching out to people who may not share the same values you have and certainly that don't know who Jesus Christ is. So the participle in your going challenged the disciples in a really radical way. Because if you go back and read Matthew, up until this point, the vision for ministry had been to renew Israel and renew the people of God. And here, Jesus lays out this huge vision to go to all the nations and make disciples in them. It means leaving where we're at in terms of comfort, language, family, and going out and ministering to other people and introducing them to Jesus Christ, explaining to them the forgiveness of sins, explaining to them what sin is, and welcoming them, inviting them to join the family of God. So the first way that we fulfill the Great Commission is by going. I was introduced to that idea when I first came to Christ, when I read a book, which I highly commend to you because it's just amazing, called Lords of the Earth. And it's about the Yali people in Papua New Guinea. So here's the story, this is the going story. This is the challenge for us. So in 1961, a man named Stanley Dale, he was an Australian and he worked with an organization called Regions Beyond Missionary Union. That's how they named missions back in the 60s apparently. Such a weird name, right? Regions Beyond Missionary Union. Anyway, he um, went into the snow mountains on, Pop on the island of Papua New Guinea and found the Yali people, Y-A-L-I. Well, the Yalis, the men were never over five feet tall. They were cannibals. It was, um, and back in those days, they would refer to them as a pygmy. They were violent. They fought other tribes, and they referred to themselves as the lords of the earth. And they lived in this snow valley in, um, in the uh, Papua New Guinea. And so in 1961, he went with a missionary and they hiked, you know, miles and miles and miles in very primitive situation into the Yali people. They stayed with them a few days. Things did not go well. And they were actually attacked by the Yalis who tried to kill them at the end of their time when they fled. Stanley Dale was actually shot five times with arrows that he pulled out of his body and survived. Came out, seven years later, he had on his heart that God wanted him to go and take the gospel to the Yali people. He went back with an American missionary, Phil Masters. They had a Yali that had converted to Christ to translate. They had some porters who were carrying things and they marched all the way back into the um, snow valley where the Yali people lived. And when they got there, it became apparent that they were not going to be well received. And the Yali attacked them. So as they were fleeing out of the valley, the Yali managed to surround them. And this time, they just kept shooting arrows. You know, they were small guys with primitive bows. And it wasn't like one arrow would kill you. They shot Phil Masters so many times, you just couldn't keep pulling them out. And he and Stanley Dale were killed and martyred. They killed some of the porters. One of the Yali converts got out and told the story. 
They went back in, Regions Beyond did, with the Papua New Guinea government, and they had um, cannibalized the men, killed them, and cooked them, and so on. And they, were, they had heard from the first trip about the resurrection, so they actually ground their bones up so there would be no resurrection of these men they had killed. Three months later, a plane flying from Australia had engine trouble and crashed in the Snow Valley, and everybody died except a nine-year-old boy that the Yali recovered. And our Regions Beyond Missionary Union and the government sent people in, and the boy's life was spared. Missionaries were sent in after that boy's life was spared. And it was a great work that developed in, uh, among the Yali people. And I don't know if some of you remember back in the day, uh, Don Richardson, who was a region beyond Missionary Union, wrote a famous book called Peace Child and wrote Lords of the Earth, came to Mariner's Church, and it was the 25th anniversary of when the original missionaries had been killed in 1961. And he said that when he went, they invited him to come and lead a worship service among the Yali people in the valley there. The altar table was a plane wing. <laughs> and it was that plane that had crashed. And the Yali thought that God had brought them the gospel through that nine-year-old boy on that plane that crashed. And that was their altar in their church and had been for the 25 years. That's what it means to go. Now, I know that most of you probably aren't going to get up and leave and go minister among pygmies in some cannibal society, but the call is to leave some of the relationships you're in, make a sacrifice to, to be in relationship with people who don't know Christ, and introduce him, them to him as their Lord and Savior, the forgiver of sins. That's the first step to becoming a disciple is to know Jesus and accept his grace and mercy in your life and confess him as your Lord and Savior. This is the first step in becoming a disciple. Second thing he says is baptize them. And so that's kind of weird because baptism has not been a big theme in Matthew, if you read the gospel account. In fact, it's only really mentioned twice. Jesus' baptism, and in Matthew 21, 25, when he has an encounter with the Jewish leaders about the meaning of John's baptism. So baptism hasn't been a big theme in Matthew, but if you look at the rest of the New Testament, you can see why it makes sense in the Great Commission. So baptism was viewed early on as an identification with God's movement in this world. This was the case for John the Baptist. When you got baptized, it was for the forgiveness of sins and for you were identifying with some new work that God was doing. The second way it was identified was in Pauline writing where it talked about the washing away of your sin. It's like a symbolic way of um, viewing the cleansing that we have from sin and the new life that we come into. And then finally, in Acts, it's very clear that baptism meant becoming part of the church family. It was like a rite of passage into the church. And I want to suggest that that's really at the heart of what Matthew's talking about here. When a person comes to Christ and confesses him as their Lord and Savior, the next step in the discipleship process is to become part of a church community, a family of God, where you belong, where you're loved, 
where you're taught, where you're modeled the Christian life. The church community is absolutely crucial in the discipleship process. It's other Christians, many of them in this room here, that have helped me become more Christ-like. The church is absolutely essential. And Marla and I experienced that when we came to Christ. She, as a young girl, grew up in the church. They were always at the church. Every Saturday morning, her dad would go down and walk around the church sanctuary. He had the keys to the sanctuary and pray. And the kids would play outside the church. They were there on Wednesday nights. They were there on Sunday mornings. Church life, the community was their life. And when I came to Christ, when I was older at 22, the church was everything to me. All my friends, my real family, is some of you are here now in the church. And when you travel around the world, you see how crucial the church is to other Christians. And you can see how we've missed this in the Great Commission. Because we think the Great Commission is about soul winning, evangelism, and conversion, we don't talk much about how crucial the church is. And so, when you ask people in the United States why they go to a church, they will almost always tell you because of the teaching pastor. I go to Saddleback because of, I go to such and such a church because of so and so. All the traveling I've done overseas, all the Christians I've been around, I've never heard that anywhere else but in the United States. When you ask Christians overseas why they go to a church, they tell you because, well, first they look at you like, what are you talking about? They go because this is our family. These are our people. This is who we hang out with. This is our community. These are all my meaningful relationships. It's kind of a silly question. Becoming a Christian means being part of a church family and having relationships in it. Parenting with other people who share my values. And let me just say this. This church, of all the churches I've been in the United States, and it's not a small number, this church has community. And you need to hold on to that, and you need to build that and pour into that. It's the second crucial phase of becoming a disciple, is to be part of a church community. And then finally, the third element is teaching. So this isn't like old-style teaching, lecturing, that sort of stuff, where you'd like know things and have some head knowledge. The kind of teaching that Jesus is talking about in Matthew is the kind of life-change teaching that we need in our churches, where the goal isn't just to know about what Jesus said, it's to actually obey him and live that way and be transformed by him. Christians are... um, spend a lot of time working on knowledge, getting their doctrine right, knowing the right thing. The kind of teaching that Jesus is talking about, if we're going to really be transformed into his image, is the kind that leads to obedience and life change. And that's uh, what I've tried to do my entire life working with children. Children are so awesome. (laughs) When you teach them something and they think it's true, they don't... Usually, they don't hesitate to just do it. They just go for it. So, uh, three weeks ago, I was teaching a lesson on prayer and how they prayed for Peter when he was in jail. And I was trying to teach kids about how to pray and how to make prayer part of your life. And they're, you know, like, uh, well, it's a big class. I mean, it's not a big class. The age groups are spanned across, you know, early elementary all the way up into middle school, probably. So, the, I tried to 
a traditional thing I was taught. The, I'm sure you all have heard this act, you know, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. So I taught them all that and everything else. And then I said, okay, so let's pray. And you know, they just actually did that. They, these little third grade boys started praying and telling God about how awesome God was. Adoration, so beautiful. And then another third grade boy sitting right next to him confessed his sin, said, I'm sorry I got mad at mom and yelled at her for something she'd actually, it turned out, didn't do. That's how he prayed. So precious. They prayed for Thanksgiving, and then they asked God to minister to their kids, siblings who are in trouble, and parents who have troubles. And so the kind of teaching that we should be looking for in the church is that kind of teaching, that we don't just hear it, but we respond to it. And quit spending so much time on trying to get all of our um, doctrinal dots in a row and be concerned about life change and life transformation. So I want to suggest this idea of making disciples in these three ways that that happens has um, been lost in the church. And people think that the Great Commission is about evangelism. And then... To make matters worse, we create this idea of we got evangelism over here and discipleship over here. And those two are like, you know, this is, this is essential because you have to come to Christ. And this is, you know, optional for the take it seriously. Uh, this creates a really huge problem in the church, and you see it, and you've heard it in the preaching. One of the early churches I served in was all about evangelizing people. Got to evangelize people. We got to present the gospel to them, meaning the message of salvation. The good news, actually, is that you can become a disciple, but that's another story. But we're going to present the good news. People can pray the sinner's prayer, give their life to Christ. And then there's those other churches that he referred to, my pastor referred to as the holy huddle. Those are the people who are about discipleship, and all they cared about was making Christians more Christian. But we're the ones who are out evangelizing the world. And you've seen this emerge in the church today. And I'm convinced that one of the reasons we have such a moral problem in our society is because the church has stopped teaching that the, well, never has taught in the evangelical church that the Great Commission is about making disciples, not just about getting converts. I actually sat in a church where a pastor said, if you want to grow more in Christ, and become a disciple, and listen to organ music, you should go to another church. It's a big church out in Temecula. He actually said that in the pulpit. Like, we're not making disciples. If you want that, go somewhere else. So what happens is you create two kinds of churches. One of them is the big mega church, where the focus on Sunday mornings is on presenting the gospel to seekers, having them pray the sinner's prayer, and then you're stoked. The more we can do, we got to build a bigger big building so we can get more people in to hear that message. Their children's ministry organizations, that their entire organization is built around evangelizing children, meaning the spiritual laws, the sinner's prayer, and that's our goal. Okay, so there's merit in being concerned for the law, certainly. But whatever the merits are in that approach, it is not fulfilling the Great Commission to make disciples. And then you have the other side of the dichotomy where churches are concerned about how can we make Christians more Christian? And they don't really care about lost people, but they are totally committed to helping people grow in Christ that are already in the family of God. And again, whatever positive merits there are in that, it is not fulfilling the Great Commission. 
The Great Commission does not create a dichotomy between evangelism and discipleship. It's about discipleship, and the only way a person can become a disciple is if we go to them and introduce them to Jesus Christ. But that is not our sole goal. It's to see people come into the family of God and then live the life that God intends for them, becoming more like Jesus every day. Well, here's my two thoughts for us to wind it up. Sorry, I get a little crazy about it, but... So the first one is, if you're in this church and you're a Christian, you should commit yourself to discipleship, which means you want to be more like Jesus tomorrow than you are today. And it means you should be going to non-Christians and building relationships with them and introducing them to Jesus Christ and helping them become a disciple. Discipleship means going to non-Christians. That's what he's teaching in this passage. And we need to commit ourselves to that as individuals and as a church. We got to be concerned about lost people, helping them find Christ, and then enjoying the life he intends for them as part of this community. And then the second one, this is personal for me, is that if you're a parent or a grandparent, our sole goal is not to have our children or grandchildren pray the sinner's prayer and say they confess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Now that's crucial. I grant you. So you can't go anywhere until you do that. But our goal as parents, those of you who have children here, is to disciple your children and help them know Christ, experience the forgiveness of sins, and then live the life he intends for them as a four-year-old, as a seven-year-old, and make disciples of your own boys and girls. And grandparents, it's the same for us. We want our children to know Christ we want to evangelize, so to speak, our grandchildren, but that's not the goal. The goal is to see them become a Christ follower, a disciple. When Caleb was about four years old, I didn't preach this message enough to myself. Uh, we were kneeled next to his bed in Poland. So awesome. And we had our hands like this, and Caleb prays, unsolicited, I didn't say a word, God, thank you that Jesus Christ died for my sins. Now, if you're a children's pastor, you know, that's, that's the best, right? I was almost in tears. And then, thank you that Daddy died on the cross for Mommy's sins. <laughs> thank you that Grandma Olita died on the cross for Grandpa Troy's sins. And she starts going through the, he starts going through the entire family. We got down to like cousins. This is like going on. It's like anybody he could think of in the family had died for somebody else. Well, two things became apparent. One is he didn't really understand what dying for your sins mean. And the other one is he didn't want to go to bed. <laughs> so I had to stop him because who knows how long we would have been there. Marla's got a lot of cousins. <laughs> the goal isn't just to pray that prayer. It's for Caleb and my daughter Brittany, and my grandchildren, to pray that prayer from the heart and then live the life that God intends for them as part of his church family. The Great Commission, the grand vision of Matthew 28 is making disciples of all the nation, nations. So this morning, we need to grab hold of that vision, commit ourselves to being a disciple, and join God 
in helping others know him and become more like his son, Jesus. Let's pray. God, we are so thankful for your word. And God, I confess, I don't wake up every morning thinking how I could be more like you than I was yesterday. But I pray that you would work that in my own heart. And God, we do want to be obedient to your your grand vision, your great commission to make disciples, beginning in our own hearts. And Lord, I pray that you would have your hand of blessing on grace as the members of this congregation reach out to people who are lost from you and invite them into a relationship with you that they would confess you as Lord and Savior, join this family of God, get good teaching, become more like you, and then go and make disciples of others. Lord, capture our hearts with that vision in our church and in our own families. We pray in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.